Hey church, we're in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, two weeks ago, Tom was there at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, last week, we really focused on VBS, um, and Jeff had a special VBS message for us. Today, we're in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11, and I just want to dive right in. There's so much uh, just gold in this passage. I, I mean, we just we keep on hitting such sweet moments in the book of Philippians, and I love, love, love these verses. So here's Philippians 3. Uh, let's start with verses 8 and 9. Indeed, Paul writing, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just so good. That first line, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, because of how much more worth it it is to know Christ. Powerful, life-changing, freeing words right here at the top. And it's really the closing thought to what Tom shared about two weeks ago. Let me just share a thought or two on this before we keep moving on to verses 10 and 11. I just see in verses 8 and 9, I see that some things are worth everything, right? There are some things in life that are just worth everything. In 1999, I was six years old, and the band, if you can call them a band, um, Smash Mouth released the greatest song to ever be released. Hey now, you're an all-star, get the game, you remember? All-star, like it was the it was the coolest song that could ever get released. I remember when I first saw uh, my cousin listening to it and she had her portable Walkman and she was wearing like the, the Adidas pants that like button up and down the sides, just a detail I remember. And she had the big old headphones and she was like, listen to this song. And I was like, okay, listen to it. And I heard it and I was hooked. And I thought, this is the greatest song I've ever heard in my life. And I remember over the, the next weeks and maybe even month or two, like, just saving up, finding whatever money I could, begging, borrowing, stealing from my parents whatever money I could, uh, wrangling up $12, $13 that it took to go buy the Smash Mouth album from Best Buy. And then we go to Best Buy and we, we look at the album and I get it. And is the it's like the greatest day of my life. And as a as a six year old kid, realizing this is worth everything I have, right? Like every one of the thirteen dollars that I've saved up and I've earned or whatever, every one of my thirteen dollars, it is just so worth this. And then I put that bad boy in my portable Walkman, and you just you couldn't tell me nothing. It was the it was the best uh, best moments of my life. It's all been downhill uh, since that. I'm just kidding. Some things are worth everything. I, in the passage here, I think we see that there is one thing that's worth everything, to know Christ. There is one thing that's worth absolutely everything, and that is to know Christ. Listen to this today. Jesus is worth infinitely more than whatever it costs you to follow him. Every one of the $13 it costs to buy the album. He is worth infinitely more than whatever it costs you anything and everything, whatever it costs you to follow him. And I think Paul exhibits this. Kent Hughes said it this way about what Paul's saying here. He said, Paul's former accomplishments became abhorrent to him, not because they were bad, for they were not, but because they kept him from Christ. 
Remember Paul saying, if anyone has reason to boast, I have more. And then he just lists his accolades and the reasons why he's qualified to boast in and of himself. Not because these things were bad in and of themselves, but because they kept him from knowing Christ better and deeper. Be careful of the good things in your life that keep you from knowing Christ more. Hear that today. Be careful of the good things in your life, the things that aren't necessarily bad, the things that are fine, but they keep you from knowing Christ, from depending on him more deeply and more fully. The things that give you any illusion of security without Christ, just be careful of those things. I love this line that Jesus says in John chapter 10. Remember, he says, I have come that they may have life and life to the what? To the full. Be careful of the good things in your life that are fine, but keep you from life to the full. That keep you from the fullness of life in Christ. And I'm not talking about your salvation. Nothing will keep you from that now. Your your eternal security. You have been saved by Jesus. He holds you secure. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. But I'm talking about the fullness of life that Jesus died to give you here and now. The full experience of that. It's not always outright blatant sin that keeps you from life to the full. See, you can success your way out of life to the full. You can leisure your way out of life to the full. You can work your way out. You can hyper-family focus your way out where that becomes a good thing that becomes a God thing to you. The opportunities for distraction are just endless for us. Corey Tin Boom's famous for saying, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy, right? And I would just add, if he can't make you sin, he'll just make you distracted. He'll just give you things that are fine, but they're not the fullness of life. He'll tempt you to put confidence in things that are okay and they're good, but they keep you from the fullness of life in Christ. And that's why Paul's just saying it's all worthless. It's just, it's garbage. It's, it's rubbish in my vision. It's worthless. Take everything I've worked for, every part of the identity I've built, every reason I could possibly have to boast. And I'm just saying it's worthless. I will give up everything, anything, because there's one thing that is worth all of it. There's one thing that's worth everything, and that is to know Christ. And verses 8 and 9 are a powerful message for anyone tempted to mix legalism with gospel, right? Legalism, the system of, of earning and deserving based on merit and behavior. To mix that up with the grace of the gospel. And I know I am tempted for that often. I think if I do this and I don't do this, then I will be in favorable standing with God. You know, I think that's tempting for a lot of us. I know for me, it's because I love being in control. I love being in control. I love feeling this this locus of control in myself. Like I can create the life that I want. If I do this and I don't do this, then this will be the result. And I understand even saying that, even suggesting that, I have all kinds of privilege that I can't even objectively see in myself. And a lot of us do. But for so many of us, Life often really does work that way, doesn't it? It really does. But if I do this, then, then I will get this. If I don't do this, then I won't get that, and, and this will be the outcome. I mean, to an extent, right? Like if I eat well and I exercise, then I will be healthier than I would otherwise. If I work hard in school and I study, I will likely get better grades than I would otherwise. 
And I've loved that my whole life. I loved that as a kid. I thrived on that, right? Like just total teacher's pet. I love this clear system of input and output. I put in this effort, I get this reward. I love clear metrics for success. Why? Because I love to be in control. And I can control that. But the gospel turns that on its head, right? That's not the gospel way. That's not the new covenant. They tried that for long enough through the Old Testament. But no amount of righteous living or ritualistic sacrifice could ever, once and for all, pay for the sin of humanity. The only way our sin could ever be perfectly or permanently covered was by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And that was all him. When he did that, that locus of control was not mine anymore. It was his. He decided. He did it. His heart was set. His eyes were fixed. He decided, I love them and I want them. And it was all him. It's still so tempting for us to mix legalism, this control mechanism, with the gospel. To be so hungry for control that we even try to use our behavior for God to control our relationship with God. But all the while, look at it, all over the New Testament, God calls you beloved, beloved, beloved. And there is a command for me and you in that title. God is just saying, be loved. Christian, son, daughter, be loved. Will you just hear with me right now, wherever you're watching this or listening to this, take this with you. If you hear nothing else today, will you just hear? You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. And you'll never be less loved. He will never love you less. It's never changing or going away. Succeed or fail as you may. Behave or misbehave as you may. His love is fixed on you. His heart is set. It's decided. You are irrevocably and eternally loved. Will he discipline you if he needs to? Yeah, he totally will. Will he correct you and rebuke you when he needs to? Sure but you are absolutely, irreversibly loved by God. And so Paul, he helps us answer this question in verses 8 and 9. What would you give up for that kind of love? For that kind of relationship? What would you give? Remember Jim Elliott's words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Verses 8 and 9 are so powerful. Let's keep moving. Verses 10 and 11, they say this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right, so Paul's saying, I'm giving up everything, all my reason to boast, it's all rubbish to me, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These verses are equally powerful and life-changing, but they are interesting to me. They, they are just so curious to me. They raise a lot of questions. It's kind of like the fine print, right? Do you ever read the fine print? When was the last time you actually read the terms and conditions before you updated your phone, right? Before you checked the little box? It's funny because wouldn't that be ridiculous if you actually did? 
like it's just so long. There's so many words. There's so much like nonsense in the in the agreement or whatever it is. It'd be kind of ridiculous if you sat there and read every single thing. I remember we got married when we were 21 and not long after that we we had to buy our first car together and we bought this new used car and that was the that was the first time I saw the stack of papers that was that thick about something that we were getting into. And I thought in that moment there's like it's logistically impossible that we'd read all of the fine print and all of the terms and conditions before we sign it and maybe that's foolish but that's kind of just how we operate, right? Like you just, you don't really ever read the fine print and it'd feel kind of ridiculous if you did. These verses kind of feel like fine print to me, if that makes sense. Like we've got these power verses in eight and nine and it's like, yes, you know, I give up everything, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's so good. It's so compelling. And then this feels a little bit like, oh, and also don't forget this. And also here's a little bit of fine print because do you see what he's saying? He's saying that we may share in the the power of his resurrection, but also that we may share his sufferings. Hmm. I don't don't love the idea of that. I don't love any time, you know, the the word suffering is included in, uh, in what we're called to in Scripture. Feels a little bit like the fine print. See, basically Paul says here that there are two ways that we have fellowship with Christ. NIV uses the word fellowship when he says the word share. We have fellowship with Christ. So two ways that we share in his experience, that we find connection with him. Two ways of fellowship with Christ. One, his resurrection. Two, his sufferings. See, that we may know the power of his resurrection and that we may also share in his sufferings. So the power of the resurrection. Amazing, right? I love that. More that, please. But then he keeps going and he says that we may share in his sufferings. Hold on one second. Not so much into that idea, personally. Not, not a, a huge fan of that. At least I don't think so. Because what does that mean? What does it mean to share the sufferings of Christ? Because these are two very different ideas. The two ways that we have fellowship with him. Suffering and resurrection. Like, it couldn't be more different. One is just so powerful and victorious. And the other is just painful and sad. How do these fit together? How do we really follow Jesus and share not only in the power of his resurrection, but also share in his sufferings, both the strength and the weakness? That's where I think Andy Crouch has really helpful language that he put to this idea. Andy Crouch wrote a book called Strong and Weak, basically making the case that the way we flourish as the people God made us to be, is found in both strength and weakness by exercising what he calls authority and vulnerability. He explains it with this two-by-two diagram we're going to throw up on the screen in a minute. It shows the relationship between those two words. So he defines authority as the capacity for meaningful action. Think of that as the power, the power of his resurrection. It means you can do something about something. You can act. You can make a difference in some way. It is strength. And then he talks about vulnerability. He defines that as exposure to meaningful risk. That's the inability to act. You can't make a difference. You can't control the outcome. It's the possibility of loss. You're experiencing weakness. And he would argue that true flourishing is found in both. Both of those, two sides of the same coin. And he thinks that Jesus was the ultimate example of both authority and vulnerability both the power of the resurrection and the sufferings of Christ. So look at this graph together. We'll throw it up on the screen. 
Look at this graph, and, and it's a two by two uh, diagram with authority going up, vulnerability going horizontally, and these four quadrants of what happens uh, in each of those scenarios. Let's walk through it. So there in quadrant three, um, a space he would call withdrawing, or you could call it safety. That's low authority and low vulnerability. Bear with me, we'll, we'll tie it all together and it'll make sense in terms of the passage. So in this space, you're not being asked to act and you don't feel like there's any real risk. It's interesting because this is where every healthy human life begins to the capacity that your parents could provide it. This is where every healthy human life begins. And really the path for every healthy human life is from here, safety, up to quadrant one, which is flourishing. You see that happening, right? It's it's good and natural. Like my, my kids, when they were one month old, they don't have any authority of any kind, really. Like there's there's not a lot of capacity for any meaningful action, but there's also very, very little vulnerability. There's not a lot of real risk as me and their mom were able to provide and, and to protect for them. And now I look at my kids and they ride bikes. So now they have authority to ride a bike, the capacity to meaningfully ride a bike, but they also have the vulnerability where they might fall on their bike, right? There's, there, there's exposure to meaningful risk that comes in tandem with meaningful authority. You move over just to the right from that into that second quadrant, a place called suffering. That's when you have low authority still, but you have high vulnerability, high exposure to risk. In some ways, we all experienced this in 2020, right? We were just so out of control of so many things that we are used to being in control of. This is a lot of our lives when we feel pain or suffering or grief. And that's sad, but, but what's worse is that for billions of people around the world, they hardly know anything other than this. They hardly know anything other than low authority and high vulnerability. And when you're here in this corner, you dream about the opposite corner, right? Where you have all the authority and no risk. So if you look at that, the top left, quadrant four, it's high authority, low vulnerability. You could call that exploiting or you could call that control. To be able to act without risk. That's what we want so often. We want all the capacity for meaningful action with zero meaningful risk happening. So often, listen, this is the Jesus that we want, isn't it? And this is the Christianity that we want. This is the faith journey that we want. It's definitely the Jesus that Peter expected. Remember when Jesus foretold his death and Peter rebuked him? He said, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. No, that's not going to happen. Jesus, you're wrong. There is no such thing as a crucified Messiah. That's an oxymoron. That doesn't exist. Remember, Jesus rebukes him. One of the sharpest rebukes Jesus ever gives out. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you have no idea. Peter, you don't know what's going on here. You just want control. You want the power with none of the risk. And that might be the Roman way, but that's not my way. Peter, you have no idea. So often that's what we want. But if you and I, if we both really think about it, we know that that space doesn't really exist or it can't exist for long. Or if it does, it actually ends up exploiting and pushing others to the opposite corner of suffering. Life can't really exist for long. It can't really flourish in a space where you are all power, all authority, with no risk, with no vulnerability, with no exposure to, to hurting, to feeling pain, to feeling loss. 
where we're designed to be is right up there to the right, up and to the right. Quadrant one, high authority and high vulnerability, a space called flourishing, where you don't ignore or avoid the risk or the vulnerability in your life. You embrace it, but you also realize that you have the capacity to make a difference. You have the capacity for meaningful action. You can do something. You can make a difference. Both authority and vulnerability held in the most beautiful balance. What's so fascinating is it actually corresponds, and this is Andy Crouch's work. This is, none of this is, is me. This is him pointing out he corresponds with the three offices of leadership that we see throughout the Old Testament. You might have heard the prophet, the priest, and the king. These three um, kind of basic umbrellas for, for all the different kinds of leaders that we see throughout history. See, the prophet They're always the one who goes to those seeking control without vulnerability, authority without risk. And he says, you need to take the proper risks and be dependent on God. And they they call them out. The priest goes to those in the suffering quadrant, all vulnerability with no authority, who don't even feel the ability to stand before God. And they give them a way to relate to God and to be with him. A way to say, okay, you can pray, you can sacrifice, and God will hear you. We really fill that priestly role anytime we meet with people in suffering and we help them find authority. We help them realize they they have authority, they have capacity to act and to make a difference. And then there was the king who was just made to embody, to demonstrate this flourishing life and to call everyone, all of their people into that fullness of life as well. So, so often this, this quadrant four, this control, exploiting all power, no risk, all, all authority, no vulnerability. That's the Jesus that we want, right? Look at verses 10 and 11. I want the power of the resurrection, but I don't want to share in his sufferings. I want all authority, no vulnerability. But the reality is that quadrant one A flourishing, balanced Jesus is the Jesus that we have, full of both authority and vulnerability. Christ, who has all the capacity in the world for meaningful action, right? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. From him and through him and to him are all things. And yet, he embraced the deepest vulnerability we could ever imagine. He made himself nothing humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the Jesus that we have, the God of resurrection and of suffering, the conquering lion and the sacrificial lamb, sovereign king, man of sorrows. So what does that all mean for you and me? Paul is calling us into this this unique a uh, powerful way of living. He's saying we have, we have the ability to share the power of his resurrection and we also share in his sufferings. Two sides of the same coin. Very different, but very necessary things that work together. So what do you do? How do I, how do I live in the power of his resurrection and also share in his sufferings? Just take home this thought with you today. And then we'll close. Embrace suffering to experience resurrection. When I look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, I see that we are called to embrace suffering, and that is really the only way to experience resurrection. Embrace all of it. All of who Jesus is. All of the fullness of life that he died to give you. Every high and every low. Understand, Christian, that life with Christ is a perpetual pattern 
of death and resurrection. Millions of, of little deaths and millions of resurrections, all that point to the resurrection of Jesus. Your life is a pattern of loss and redemption. Constantly dying to our old selves and then putting on the new self in increasing measure. Every moment of loss, pain, sadness, anger, grief, all moments to be felt and embraced, not ignored or numbed, not to pull you away from God, but to push you closer toward him so that you and I would know that through it all, he is enough. Share in his suffering so that you can know the power of his resurrection. See, our lives are shaped by suffering, but we are marked by resurrection. We are people of new life. So every time you experience pain or grief or loss, because I don't know about you, I, I, don't, know, um, I don't know if I've been raised or formed to really have much of a paradigm for what to do with those things. Like in, in a lot of ways, it seems like the Christian faith sometimes is painted as this just, it's all victory and it's all conquering. And, and that's amazing and there's truth to that, but sometimes it just leaves me feeling like, but what about all this? Like, what, can Christians be sad? Right? I mean, can Christians be angry? What, what do I do with an emotion like anger? What do I do with, with a very human experience like loss and grief? and pain. Like, is there room for that in, in our Christianity? What, what do I do with that? Paul helps us see. You experience that. And it's not an opportunity to run or avoid or ignore it, but a time to press in, to embrace the weakness and the vulnerability, that exposure to meaningful risk, because then you can wait to see how God brings redemption to that space, how he brings resurrection to that space. Embrace the suffering and see how God brings new life. That is the pattern of your life. And if you embrace it, then it makes a lot more sense when it happens. That's the pattern of your life. A million little deaths and a million resurrections, all pointing to our God who stepped into suffering and loss, and then he rose from the dead. A pattern of life that all points to him. I don't know what that looks like or what that feels like for you, to me, just, just to think through that, it just feels like freedom. It feels like liberation. Weight off of my shoulders to hear, okay, embrace my weaknesses, embrace the pain, embrace the suffering. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there, but embrace it because that is where I will more deeply and fully experience the power of the resurrection. Okay, I can do that. I don't have to project strength. I don't have to pretend anything. I can embrace my weakness because I have plenty of that. I know my weaknesses. Man, I know my shortcomings. That feels like freedom to me. That feels like freedom. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jesus. That feels like liberation to me. To know that my Christian journey is not about me getting better and better at pretending to be strong. It's about me becoming more and more aware of my weakness. And that's just one of those catch-22 paradoxes about our faith. As you grow in strength in your faith, it's really growing in awareness of your weakness. That's strength for the Christian. That's strength for the Christian, not projecting any sort of your own strength. Because it's about me becoming more aware of my weakness because then I'm truly dependent on the God who is strong enough for me. 
He is more than strong enough, more than capable enough for me. When I am weak, he is strong. So church, Christian, embrace the suffering. Embrace your weakness. Be honest about it. Embrace your vulnerability. It is the only way that you and the world around you will really see the power of the resurrection. Let me pray for us. So Lord, we're, uh, we are challenged and convicted and God, I'm so humbled that you would just give us this freeing message today through your word that God, we can just embrace our weaknesses. We can embrace the suffering, embrace the moments of pain, knowing that in those moments, uh, we see and experience the power of your, your resurrection like never before. So Lord, we're thankful for that. I pray that we would follow you more wholeheartedly today and that we would follow you more honestly today. Lord, use the message today to help us, uh, to help us grow more into the people you've made us to be with zero pretense, no pretending, uh, no over-projecting uh, strength or confidence in ourselves, but Lord, just experiencing the strength in you drawing on you for all source, for all strength, for all uh, life, and for all purpose. Lord, draw us to you more wholeheartedly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.